Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good week. Back from vacation. If you got out of town, I envy you. We stayed here and shoveled some snow. Not nearly as much as we thought we were going to, but that's okay. Weatherman jobs are the greatest jobs in media. Because you don't ever see weathermen getting cut. You know, if, if things get cut, it's usually one of the news people who's down the chain, the sports guy, me, hi, yeah. Uh, you never see the weatherman cut. My dream job has always been to be the weatherman in San Diego. Yeah, about 72 degrees today. Marine layer is going to burn off about one. Put the sunscreen on this afternoon. Be careful of the waves. They'll get going this afternoon, too. Back to you in the studio every day. That's the San Diego weather report. I could do that. I just did. Man, what a gig. But we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk sports, here to talk about fun stuff. Got some Sabres news. Well, not really news, but, you know, we're going to talk about the Sabres, so I guess that's news. It's a little bit of baseball. I'm going to tell you something about Fernando Tatis that you may not know. Fernando Tatis Jr., I should say, that you may not know. But I'm going to start with Syracuse basketball and not the debacle of last night against Duke because that that doesn't deserve top billing. What deserves top billing is the comments made by Jim Beheim and then the retort by Jay Billis surrounding Jalen Johnson, a very talented player from Duke who decided to opt out for the season. Essentially what Beheim said initially – was that Duke is a much better team without Jalen Johnson. Now, Jalen Johnson was one of the top recruits in the country this year. He played 13 games, and the last of those 13 games, he only played about eight minutes, didn't really see much time. So we're going to say 12 games, averaged just over 11 points and six rebounds per game, shot about 44% from three, good player, NBA prospect. He decided that he was going to opt out. Jim Beheim said that Duke is a better team without him. He also went on to talk about how he didn't like the opt-out, but, you know, he wishes the player well. Other people in media said that Jalen Johnson's camp, his people, were behind this decision. Now, Jay Billis took umbrage with that, and I think in a way – Jay Billis combined two things. I want you to listen to Billis' what he said as a retort, and then I'll get into the discussion. Jay, what do you make uh, of what Coach Jim Beheim had to say about Jalen Johnson? Well, I didn't agree with Jim when he said that. Uh, and this is somewhat of a familiar ring. Uh, a couple years ago when James Akinjo left Georgetown, uh, Jim said the same thing about James Akinjo, that Georgetown was better off without him, that Akinjo never passes the ball, that he's not a good player, things like that. Uh, I didn't agree with that. Akinjo was at the top of the Big East or near it in assists. He's at the top of the Pac-12 now at Arizona in assists. He does pass the ball, and he is a good player. Uh, and I don't agree that somehow Duke is better off without Jalen Johnson just because they beat NC State uh, and Wake Forest in succession without him. Earlier in the season, they beat Georgia Tech and Clemson with him. And, uh, and we were saying that 
Duke was turning the corner. Uh, I don't agree with what Jim said, but but that's fine. I think there's a much larger issue here that we're seeing in the commentary with regard to, to Jalen Johnson and his decision that's somewhat disturbing. And that is, uh, first, people said, and it was discussed among commentators, that he had cleaned his locker out and he had left Duke. And if he was really worried about his health, why would he leave the Duke Medical Center? He's not cleaned his locker out. He's still here. He's still in school. That narrative is absolutely incorrect and false. But there's also a thing about he's, he's got his camp is telling him what to do. There are people in his ear. He's got a mother and father and a family. And his mother and father are the ones that are advising him on this business decision. And his mother and father and Jalen Johnson were dealing with the Duke coaching staff on making this decision. Uh, we can quarrel with the decision and say, hey, maybe it would be better for your draft status if you stayed or, or maybe it's better if you go. That's fine. Uh, but I think we can do better than some of the, frankly, the coded language that's being used. I think the first thing that needs to be pointed out is Jim Beheim never used any of the coded language that Bill has referred to. Now, other people in the media did. His camp, his people. There are racial undertones to those statements. It's his family. And you, if my kid was... a uh, college basketball player I would be very much a part of his decision making process as well and I think any parent who has a child in college should be part of the decision making process for that child in college it's kind of your job as a parent so I understand Billis getting a little annoyed with the racial undertones and and, and it must be said that Billis is very much a pro player person when it comes to discussions of the NCAA versus the player. He's always on the player, pay the player, stipend the player. He's always in favor of that. He doesn't like the NCAA, goes against the NCAA quite often. And I'm okay with that. And I understand where he comes from as a former player and as a parent of college basketball players. He sees what the player has to go through to earn that scholarship. Now, me, I look at the pay scale versus stipend as two different discussions. You want to talk about a stipend, I'm in favor all day. The NCAA has billions of dollars. They fund a lot of sports, give a lot of opportunities with scholarships. They have money that they could stipend athletes to help them through their college. As far as paying the players, I'm against it wholeheartedly. They do get paid. The average value of a Division One basketball scholarship is somewhere around $70,000 per year. For $70,000 a year, a high school kid or an 18-, 19-year-old kid is not likely to earn that money coming out of high school without some sort of background. Now, these are special, talented kids we're talking about. Everyone gets caught up in worrying about Duke taking advantage of Zion Williams. To me... Zion Williamson benefited greatly from Duke. If Zion had come out of high school and gone pro, which he should be able to do, by the way, it's a different discussion, but definitely should be able to do that. He would have been a mid-first-round pick, very little fanfare, wouldn't have got a sneaker deal that he got. He went to Duke and made a name and, and, and a visibility for himself that landed him a $100 million sneaker deal. Now, two years in, Zion's playing great basketball. Is anybody paying attention to Zion? Is anybody buying his jersey the way we thought they would? It's a mutually beneficial situation between the college basketball player and the colleges. The colleges get 
their money from the NCAA by winning tournaments and games and sneaker contracts and all that. And they use the player to get that. The player uses the school to showcase their abilities and to get themselves drafted. So there's a lot of things that are wrapped up in this Jalen Johnson conversation that I think are part of the bigger conversation. Now, Billis against Bayheim. Bayheim was right. <laughs> and we saw it again last night. Now, four games without Jalen Johnson as a starter, five if you count, or four if you count the NC State game, where he only played eight minutes. Duke wins that game. They beat Wake Forest, which isn't a great win. But they also beat Virginia, which is a very good win, and blew out Syracuse last night. Crushed them. They are a better team without him now are they better because he's gone or are they better because of the people that they're playing one one of the things that's happened is a kid by the name of mark williams and if you watch last night's syracuse game you certainly know mark williams is seven footer in the first nine games of the season he hadn't had more than 10 minutes in a game only one time in the first nine games of the season i'm sorry did he have more than 10 minutes in a game the last four He's averaged about 20 points or 20 minutes per game because Jalen Johnson has stepped away. All of a sudden, an athletic seven footer has entered the lineup and he has given them something they did not have. Is one door closes, another door opens. That's what this is. And Duke has found players to step in and take advantage of this. And I think it's important to note that. Jim Beheim watches a ton of college basketball. I watch a lot of basketball, no, nowhere near what Jim Beheim does. Not only does he coach his team, watch his team's film, prepare his team for games, he'll go home and watch college basketball all night long. He knows teams, he knows players, he knows conferences. It's He's a junkie. He's that guy who just loves college basketball. So, for Bayheim to make this statement, it's not as if he hadn't seen Duke play with Jalen Johnson. Now, he didn't disparage Jalen Johnson. He said he's a fine player. He doesn't know much about him, and he, you know, sure he'll be a good pro. He did, however, say that Duke is much better without him. And based on what we're seeing, it's right. I think there's another part of this discussion that leads to the culture that Duke has now embraced, and it's the one-and-done culture. John Calipari and Kentucky get a lot of criticism, acclaim, you choose the word, for being a one-and-done factory. They, since 2009, when Calipari has been there, have had 25 players go one-and-done. Duke, under Mike Krzyzewski, has had 19 one-and-dones. I'll say that again. Under Cal, Kentucky has had 25. Under Coach K, Duke has had 19. Those are not big differences in numbers. And if you think about it, Coach K, it goes further back. Corey McGetty, Luol Dang were way back in the day, but they're one-and-done guys, so they count as at 19. If you look at 2009 to present, you've got 17 players from Duke and 25 players from Kentucky. And, oh, yeah, Kentucky did this first, won a national title, and then Coach K decided he was going to do it as well. So when you accept the one-and-done culture, when that becomes your way of winning college basketball games and your way of winning 
games and titles, that's your philosophy. You're going to have kids like Jalen Johnson who don't give a rat's ass about Duke. They care about their next step. And, and that's not that uncommon. Malachi Richardson, when he was at Syracuse, the day after the tournament loss, that his last year, he left school. He started working out for the draft. Kids use colleges the same way colleges use kids. What we get lost in is there are a lot of kids, and we're talking about Duke and Syracuse and Kentucky now, that don't go to Duke, Syracuse, and Kentucky. They go to St. Bonaventure or Niagara or Canisius or Siena, who play four years and get a free education and end up living a life because of the opportunities that were provided for them. We never discuss that when we talk about should we play, play athletes? Should we allow the one and done? To me, you've got to get rid of the one and done by allowing kids to go straight from high school to the pros. It's the simplest way. If you're good enough, go pro. You want to play in the G League, go play in the G League. And there are kids that are doing that. They'd rather earn a paycheck playing in the G League, riding a bus and doing whatever. And this year it's obviously a bubble down in Orlando. than they would dealing with the college experience. And it depends on the family. It depends on the kid. So you look at a kid like Darius Baisley, who was supposed to go to Syracuse. It worked out very well for him. He didn't go to Syracuse. He went to the G League. He's now in the league, and he's a very good player, and he's getting better. Worked out very well. That was his choice. But there were times in the G League where he was struggling mightily, and he's talked about it. It's, it's a tough transition. To me, if I'm a parent of a kid, I want him to go to school for at least two years. I want him to grow up. I want him to have the college experience that will enable him to be a better man. Not, not, it's not just about basketball because, yes, a lot of these kids, I'll go back to Malachi Richardson, got that first contract. He's set financially for life if he's smart. Tyler Lydon, same way, set financially for life if he's smart. But it ends quickly. And then what? Then what are you prepared to do? That's why, to me, going to school, getting a basis of education, growing up. And if you've gone to college, you understand what I'm saying. You grow up more in the first two months of college than you did the first 18 years of your life. And you might not act like a grown-up those first two months of college because you're free for the first time. But you've learned that nobody else gives a rat's ass if you get your shit done. You better get it done. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And it's those things that the college experience treats people. And you can screw up in a way that's not going to get you fired from your job. Let's just say it that way. You go to the G League, you don't feel like going to practice that day, oversleep, eh, I'll blow it up. Guess what? You just got caught. And now you got nothing going on. So there are a lot of reasons that college basketball is better for the player for the most part than going straight to the pros. Now, there's exceptions. You look at a kid like LeBron James. LeBron is the greatest high school player to the pro player ever. Nobody's ever made that transition as successful. Even Kobe wasn't that good, nor was Kevin Garnett. It took them a year or two to get their footing. LeBron stepped right in. He was ready. He's also handled it flawlessly. There are people who do that. But I think that overall, when you're Looking at the kid, it's much better to go to school. Beheim was right on this. Billis attacked Beheim 
because he was annoyed that Beheim said something. He was also annoyed that others used coded racial undertones, camp, posse, people, used those in describing this. Combine the two stories, which is wrong. Beheim never said anything about Jalen Johnson's camp or his people or his family or his pot. Didn't say any of that. Billis combined the two. Now, the two of them have spoken. They Billis did the Duke game last night, and Beheim and Billis have spoken. They're longtime friends. They've known each other since Beheim tried to recruit Billis coming out of high school in California back in the early 1980s. So this isn't something that these two guys aren't familiar with each other. And at the end of his presser last night, Beheim said, you know, Jay Billis knows a lot. He's a smart guy. I know more. And again, Beheim loves to throw around how much he, he knows. In this case, he was right. He was right. To me, it comes down to the question about Jalen Johnson leaving Duke. And I think there are some questions here. When you accept a college scholarship, you sign a contract. Your contract, you provide the services. Services are your basketball playing ability. The school provides the education, the books, the place to live, meals, all the training services that you need. That's how the deal works. If you want to opt out, I have no problem. It's like anyone else. You go to a school, it's just not a fit. Transfer. Step out, take a semester off, whatever. You should be able to do that. Jalen Johnson has every right to be able to do that. Here's my question. If he opts out, here we are in February, second semester just started. Apparently, he's still living at Duke. Apparently, he's still going to school. Now, if that's the case, should he have that right? Should Duke be required to provide a free education and, in this case, allow him to continue to use the facilities, the medical facilities, the practice facilities, all of the things that go along with that? Should he still get his free meals? All, he's not living up to his end of the contract. That's one area where, to me, if you're not going to play, you're going to opt out. Okay, you need help packing your room up? Time to move off campus. I don't see why the university is obligated to continue to do that. And again, that's a discussion I'm sure many people say, well, yeah, but he already put in the first semester. Yes, and he got paid for the first semester, if you will. He got his free education if he took advantage of it. He got his meals. He got his training and athletic part of that. I just think that if you opt out, you're not living up to your contract. And it's not just Jalen Johnson. This goes back to the college football days. Look how many kids opt out of bowl games. To me, the minute you opt out, pack your stuff. You're done playing? Pack your stuff. The Bosa boys, get out. You, you, you guys want to opt out? That's fine. Opt out. Get your stuff. Get out of the dorm. Go work out on your own. Hire a trainer. That's your decision. We didn't kick you out. We've got a place for you. You can play. I just don't like the opt out without any consequence. It's too easy. I think life is full of consequences of your decisions. In this case, what's Jalen Johnson's consequence? He doesn't have to practice with the team. He can work on individual drills and continue to get stronger. Maybe go to class. His grades don't matter anymore. I don't know the young man, so I don't know if he's 
a true student or he's just there to play basketball. I hope he's a true student because I like to think that he's going to try to make something of himself both as a basketball player and as a person. And I think that education can certainly help in that respect. So it's, it's a complicated discussion. There's no right or wrong answer. But I do think that Jay Billis going after Bayheim, he went after him in part because of what Bayheim said, but in large part because of the racial undertones of what others have said. And that bothered Billis a lot. And it should. It's fine. You know, you hear about Luca Garza and you hear about all how his family is so instrumental in what he does. Here's a white kid whose father worked him out all the time and his father's instrumental. Jalen Johnson, his mother and father help him make a decision. And all of a sudden it's his people. It's different. It's very different. And it's got an undertone that shouldn't be there. And I think that is in large part what bothered Billis. And he tied these two things together. Nonetheless, Bayheim happened to be right. Bayheim, unfortunately, saw firsthand last night, and this is the transition into what happened last night. This is embarrassing by Syracuse, and it was a, a terrible display. The Orange gave up 10 three-pointers in the first half. Duke's ball movement was very good. You can attack the zone with good ball movement. They did that all night. You know, it's interesting. Jim Bayheim has tweak things and I gave him credit for tweaking things a little bit uh, last week on the podcast. What I found interesting last night, you're getting crushed in the zone. You fall behind by 20 in the second half, they came out and press and it was evident that Syracuse just can't press. They don't have the legs. They don't have the depth. The reason they don't have the depth is because they don't try to create that depth. When you go seven deep, you're only going to have so much of that depth. And Buddy Beheim was gassed in the second half of that game last night. Kadari Richmond was gassed. It was just a, a, a terrible offensive and defensive performance. Syracuse doesn't have an offense that goes well against tight man-to-man defense. This has been going back years. The only guy who can beat anybody off the dribble is the, the freshman, Kadari Richmond. He's the only player that's able to get anybody off the dribble. Other than that, Gerard struggles. Beheim doesn't really have that. He's tried to work that into his game, doesn't have it. Quincy Gurrier can beat people, but he doesn't have a fluidity to his finish product. Alan Griffin doesn't seem to be interested in getting all the way to the rim, much rather use a hard dribble and, and pull up for a jumper. It's just not a good team against man-to-man defense. And, and the Syracuse defense, what got me thinking, Bayheim made the adjustment goes in the second half, goes to a press, which you have to. Duke handled the press with ease. Syracuse is not a good pressing team. They don't do it very often. How about this? There's a defensive principle called man-to-man. Try that. What do you have to lose? At one point, if you're getting crushed in your zone, you've got to make an adjustment. Jim Beheim will not play man-to-man. I just simply cannot comprehend at some point. Just pick up a man. Let's see what we got. How much worse could it have been last night? It was bad. Ten threes in the first half. You know, here's another part of last night that I got to get to. Joe Girard III was a big recruit for Syracuse a couple of years ago. Could have gone to Duke, Notre Dame. Could have gone a lot of places. 
came to Syracuse. It appears to me Jim Beheim has lost Joe Girard. He didn't start the second half last night. Kadari Richmond's a better player, and Richmond deserves to play. Beheim, Jim, likes to play his son a lot because Buddy's a great shooter, and having him on the floor always gives him a chance. I don't know what you do about Joe Girard, but there was a conversation that was caught on camera last night in the second half when Gerard finally got in. Beheim's screaming at him about something, and Gerard's body language was not good. I would not be surprised at all if Joe Gerard, after this year, packs up his things, goes back to, back to Glens Falls, starts making phone calls, gets Jimmer for that on the phone, his, his guidance counselor, if you will, and they find a new place for Gerard to play. And, and I don't know that Syracuse should be upset about that if it happens, but I just I, – I, I see the constant bitching of Beheim and the body language of his players, and very few seem to be able to withstand it and thrive because of it. I think he's lost this team. I think the fact that they almost got beat by Notre Dame on Saturday, the fact that they had to come back from down 20 to Notre Dame on Saturday shows how ill-prepared they were at the beginning of the game to play. It's just unfortunate. And this team and this era of basketball for Syracuse is quite simply a letdown. This is one of the blue blood programs in college basketball, or it was. Now, it's just another program. You know, we could talk about the bubble all you want. This isn't a bubble team right now. This team needs to win out. They won't beat Georgia Tech, I don't think. I mean, they can probably, but I don't see it happening. Carolina's big front line is, is an incredible mismatch. I don't see that happening. So this team now gets into a situation where they probably have to win two or three games in the ACC tournament to have even a sniff of the NCAA tournament. I don't think it's going to happen. Again, last night, Syracuse out-rebounded by Duke, and Duke's not a physical team. So, unfortunately, the SU report is not good this week. This season will be a lost one. Like you know, And it's tough because of COVID, the starts, the stops. You saw what Louisville did against Carolina in the first game back. They weren't ready to play. Got beat by about 38, I think it was. If Syracuse had played Louisville last week, maybe that would have been a result that pushes them further towards the tournament. But they haven't taken advantage of their opportunities. And that win against Notre Dame, as good of a second half as that was, last night's loss was a worse loss. Everyone wanted to see what Syracuse could do against Duke. The final score was a 14-point deficit. The game was not that close. Syracuse this year is going to be a non-tournament team yet again under Jim Beheim. And going forward, I don't think it's going to get all that much better anytime soon. You're recruiting the same type of kids, the same positions. You still don't have a big man. You played, They played last night John Ball as Jacques for a few minutes. Hey, this season's lost. It's time to get he, Frank Aslam, get them some time. Get them some, some action in the middle and, and see if there's something there. Because they may transfer as well. They may end up somewhere else. The way the transfer portal works, why wouldn't you? 
if your career is not going well at a school, go somewhere else where you get an opportunity. So, unfortunately, we're going from bad to worse. We're talking Syracuse, and I'm shoveling dirt on that grave for 2021. And I'm uh, going to bring up the Sabres. Well, yesterday marked the 10th anniversary of the Sabres being purchased by Terry Pagula. Back then it was just Terry. It wasn't Terry and Kim. Now it's Kim and Terry. They own everything together, obviously. And she's taken more of a front stance in the organization. Whether that's good or bad, we don't know. I know the Bills' situation is very good. Bills obviously made the AFC Championship game this year. Sabres, 10 years of Pagula ownership. Six coaches. Don't forget Ron Rolston if you start doing the coaches. Yeah. Six coaches, four general managers, zero playoff games. One of those 10 years, they finished at 500. Their best finish in that year, they finished six out of eight teams the year they finished 500. They've had five last place finishes. One year finished second to last in 10 years. Half the time, they're a last place team. That doesn't count this year where they reside in last place yet again. This year, the big news in the offseason, Jason Bottrell was fired as general manager. Kevin Adams was promoted from ticket sales. Not really, but it's more funny that way. From ticket sales to general manager because he's a good soldier. Look, what's going to change with this organization? Why would we expect change? Ralph Kruger's in year two. I don't know what impact he's made other than Rasmus Dahlin two years ago looked like he was going to be a Hall of Fame defenseman. Now he looks like a guy who maybe should be playing in Rochester. Jack Eichel was on his way to a Hall of Fame career, and he's had three goals so far this year. I'm sorry, two. I gave him one more. Two goals so far this year. I'm not sure what Ralph Kruger has brought to the table, but this Sabres mess is not getting better. Uh, they've lost five of six. They've got three regulation wins so far this year in their 15 games. They've got 12 points. They're seven points out of a playoff spot. I get it that COVID has been a problem, and Rasmus Ristolainen, who's dealing with the COVID after effects, was off to a good start. Maybe that was an improvement this year. But you look at what was brought in on this team. You know, Dylan Cousins is the next great hope. He's got a couple goals. He's looked okay in spots. Of course, he hasn't played every night because that's Ralph Kruger's decision. Taylor Hall, who was brought in, he's got a goal, one, one more than you and I. Uh, Darlene, I mentioned, he has regressed horribly. He's got a goal. Jeff Skinner, who was a healthy scratch last night at, I think, $9 million a year, hasn't got a goal yet this year, hasn't scored a goal. This is a team and an organization that's going nowhere. Oh, well, backwards. How does it get right? What do you do? You know, at some point, you know, six coaches, four general managers. At some point, it's the players. And I don't know that you move Jack Eichel. I don't know if that's the move. I don't know what you do. There aren't fans. You you don't have to worry about the fans not coming to the games because they can't go anyway. If you want a year to just dump everything and start fresh, This is probably the best year to do it. Because what are you going to have, empty seats in the arena? Eventually, maybe you could put 10% of the people in the stands. 
Well, 10% of Sabre fans would go anyway, regardless of who's playing. So if you wanted to clean house, this might be the best time to do it. And I'm not saying they should trade Jack Eichel because he's the one player I'm sure of. I mean, you brought in Eric Stahl this year. He's 36 years old. He's actually been all right. He could become now your captain and your leader. Could step into that. Sam Reinhart and Victor Olofsson have been okay. So I wouldn't move those guys. But if you moved Eichel, you'd get a ton in return. But think of, it's not dissimilar to what Philly just did with Carson Wentz. Think of the sacrifice. You tanked for two years to try to get Connor McDavid, which the ping pong balls didn't go their way. And the consolation prize was Jack Eichel, who, again, this is a guy a couple years ago I thought was on a Hall of Fame path thought he was going to be one of the great players in the league, top five player in the league for a decade. Now he's a guy with two goals, 13 points. It's just not good enough. And, and you can say all you want about the people around him, the, the culture, the sometimes you got to pick up, pick yourself up. And, and Jack Eichel doesn't seem to be doing that right now. And I'm not blaming Eichel for this mess. Believe me, this is, this is Terry and Kim Pagula's mess from the day that Kim Pagula fired Pat LaFontaine many years ago and entrusted Ted Black to make the hockey decisions, this franchise has been in a downward spiral. And it's one that's never recovered. Remember in Top Gun when he was in, got hit with a jet wash and he was in a flat spin and they couldn't get out of it? That's the Sabres. They're in a flat spin. They got caught in the jet wash. Kim Pagula behind the scenes made decisions that put this franchise back a decade at least. And why would anyone pay good money to go see them if you could? That, that's the thing. It's not about this year. I just said, no fans are going. And, and there's always going to be a fan who goes regardless. So don't worry about the fans this year. Make decisions so that next year, people have a reason to be optimistic. And what are you going to do at the end of the year? Fire Ralph Kruger again? So now you got another coach who's gotten a two-year run? Bilesma, two years. He got two years. You gave Ted Nolan two years. Lindy got a year, two years. Everyone gets two years under these people. It's just amazing. And again, the problem is the culture of the organization. They need to remove themselves, they being the Pagulas, need to remove themselves from the equation. They can't do it. They finally have done it with the Bills because they've gotten somebody that they trust in Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. Until they find that and remove themselves from the equation on the hockey side, it's more the same. And, you know, for all the good that the Pagulas have done with the Bills, and I don't know how much of it they deserve credit for, they deserve credit for Sean McDermott. And he has taken the rest and made it work. The Pagulas deserve all of the blame, in my opinion, for this organization, the Sabres. They're running it into the ground. It was once proud, great organization. It's now a disaster. It's a laughing stock. And I feel very bad for all the fans who have invested time, money, <laughs> emotion into this. If you follow Twitter and you follow Sabres Twitter, the fans are still 100% behind the Pagulas. And I just simply can't understand it. They're behind the players. They think it's all Ralph Kruger's fault. There have been six coaches in 10 years. 
Not one of them has had an above 500 season. It's ridiculous. And remember that press conference with Terry Pagula? Goal here on out is to win Stanley Cups. But the goal here on out is to make a playoff. Ridiculous. All right, now I'm going to pick you back up. Baseball's coming. I know you look outside, you see the snow. It's you know cold. We're almost to March. Next time we talk next week, it will be March. Spring training has begun. Best news I've seen in a long time was the Rochester Red Wings announced that April 13th is their home opener this year. Couldn't be more pleased to hear that. Now, I don't know that we'll be able to go to Red Wings games. Again, the governor has said that we very well may be able to go to games, 10% of occupancy, so maybe 1,500 a night or so, maybe 1,000 a night, whatever it takes. Just let us go to some baseball games. I think it's great having the Red Wings in town is a blessing to me. I, I think it's great to be able to go to those games and enjoy a night out in the summer. And I look forward to doing that. Yankees got some bad news. Clark Schmidt, one of their really good young prospects, uh, pitcher, somebody I thought had a chance at the back end of the rotation this year, shut down for four weeks because of an elbow issue. Now it's supposedly not Tommy John or Tommy John related. He had Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago. But anytime I hear elbow and young pitcher, I get very, very nervous. That, to me, puts a little more pressure on Davey Garcia. Garcia's a kid who I'm not a believer in, but if he gets a chance, who knows? I just, when you see a prospect who's not overpowering, doesn't have pinpoint control, but has good stuff, to me, you've got to have pinpoint control and have good stuff if you're not overpowering. I don't believe he does. He's had moments where he's shown very good stuff and been able to get things going. He's also shown moments where he looked like a 4A pitcher. So we'll see where Davey Garcia goes from here. The big news in baseball this week, and I think the more interesting part of this story is the side story that most people don't know much about, is Fernando Tatis Jr. signing a 14-year, $340 million deal. See, young man who wasn't a top prospect when he was back in double a he was a prospect but not somebody that was a can't miss not one of those guys that we all know about coming up but man he is one of the bright young stars in baseball has a flair to him he plays the game with unbridled joy he's fun to watch he's a great young player and if you're going to invest in somebody i could see why the padres chose to invest in him he makes a little bit more money now during his arbitration years and before his arbitration years. And at the back end, the Padres get a little bit better of a deal. This deal will take him to 36 years old. Now, there's a thing out there that, I, frankly, I never knew about. It's called Big League Advance. This gentleman by the name of Michael Schwimmer, who was a former major league pitcher, he was a relief pitcher for the Phillies for a couple of years, didn't have a big, big time career more of a cup of coffee guy than anything else well michael schwimmer started big league advance what big league advances is it goes to prospects players in the minor leagues who are making very little money if you don't know the economics of baseball quite often players whether they sign for the caribbean or the latin countries or where they're drafted through the process they'll get their signing bonus and then they live on about ten thousand dollars a month if that in some, in some cases, it's, it's about half that. And, and 
I think I'd be in high. It's like maybe even like twenty thousand dollars a year. Some minor leaguers make. They're now going to up that. The league and MLBPA have worked, and they're restructuring minor league pay scale. But minor leaguers don't make a lot of money. They often live four to a house, and you know they're like college kids. They're just chasing the dream, you know, trying to get through with what they can. And, you know, when you think of Latin, the Latin players, a lot of these kids come from big time poverty in in the Caribbean. And whatever signing bonus they have is split between the agent that got them that signing bonus and their family to try to get, in some cases, needs as simple as shoes on their feet. It's a very tough structure on young baseball players. It just isn't a lot of money. We, we see $340 million for Fernando Tatis Jr. And we think how rich ball players are. Well, the good portion of minor league players are very far from wealthy and in most cases are still quite poor. So what Big League Advance did, Michael Schwimmer's idea was, let's do this. Let's loan these guys money, especially prospects, for a share of their future major league earnings. In some cases, 8%. Well, Fernando Tatis Jr. was one of the players who took advantage of Big League Advance. Now, I don't know how much money Big League Advance gives the players. We don't know what Big League Advance gave Fernando Tatis Jr. What we do know is that Big League Advance is going to get 8% of all of Fernando Tatis Jr.'s major league earnings. 8% of $340 million is around $27 million. It's quite a payoff. Now, they haven't struck gold like this before. We would have heard of it. This is a legal practice. And and the young players, in some cases, are taking the money that they're given by Big League Advance. They don't end up making the major leagues. And that's a loss for Big League Advance. So if it's $100,000, Big League Advance is out. And in some cases, to you know, some of these kids especially some of the poor kids from the Caribbean, $100,000 will feed their families for generations. So they're able to have a better life for not only themselves, but their families. But now we're seeing that people are saying how wrong this practice is because Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to have to pay so much. What's strange about Fernando Tatis Jr. being the guy who's going to be the poster child for is big league advance bad or good is that his father, Fernando Tatis was a very successful major league player who made a lot of money playing baseball. And you would think junior, why would he take an advance? He wasn't, it wasn't doing it for family back in the Caribbean. He wasn't doing it for himself really to, to feed himself. I I'm surprised he's the guy because again, big league advance, what, critics of it are saying is they're taking advantage of undereducated, poor young ball players, And to a degree, they're correct. But there's a payoff for both sides. In this case, Big League Advance won big. So interesting. And keep your eyes open because I'm sure this isn't the last we'll hear of this story. A little bit of Buffalo Bills talk today. Can't go a whole podcast without talking about the Bills. I thought about this with J.J. Watt still figuring out his decision. And he said last week on Twitter, takes him an hour on DoorDash to decide which restaurant he's going to order from. Give him a break when it comes to choosing a new city and team to play for. Uh, 
when you look at JJ, the question is, is age and the injury history. Well, in the last three years, JJ Watt has played 16 games, eight games, and then 16. So he missed half of one season in the last three years. Previous two years, he played five and three games. Before that, he played all 16 each of his seasons. So there is some injury history. I looked at the economics of this. If the Bills were to sign him, it would probably be $17, $18 million a year. Very similar to what if they were to re-sign Matt Milano. So the question is, who would you rather have for the Buffalo Bills? Matt Milano for the same price or J.J. Watt? In case you're wondering, Matt Milano in the last three years, 10 games, 15, and 13. You add that together, that's 38 games. That's two games less than J.J. Watt has played in the last three years. Who would you rather have, Matt Milano or J.J. Watt? Milano is a very replaceable player. A.J. Klein had moments of good replacing him, and I don't think of A.J. Klein as a guy who's a very good player. I think he's serviceable. But if the Bills were to start A.J. Klein and have J.J. Watt, they'd be a better team than if they had Matt Milano out there without J.J. Watt and A.J. Klein as a reserve. So to me, for $17 million, J.J. Watt's the answer, not Matt Milano. Now, here's another part of it. Because a lot of people say, well, the Bills don't have $17 million to spend anyway, so they can't do that. Would you rather have Matt Milano, J.J. Watt, or Vernon Butler, Mario Addison, and Quentin Jefferson? Because the economics there are about the same as well. Those three players brought in by Brandon Bean last year paid a whole heck of a lot of money for a whole little bit of production. To me, again, J.J. Watt's the answer. I don't know that this will happen. I don't know when this decision is going to come down. But to me... J.J. Watts, the piece of the puzzle the Bills need to add this offseason. They need to figure out how to get it done. If it involves waiving those three players I just mentioned, that's fine because you got Star Latulule coming back. J.J. Watt and Star Latulule are greater than Vernon Butler, Mario Addison, and Quentin Jefferson. So however you got to figure it out, that's what's got to be done. When you think about the potential long-term impact of J.J. Watt having on a guy like A.J. Epinenza, who could learn a lot from being around a J.J. Watt. It would be a perfect fit. I've been saying it since during the season. I'll continue to say it. I'll continue to bang the drum. Whatever needs to be done, make it happen. Brandon Bean, bring in J.J. Watt. One last piece. This last weekend, the golf was out in L.A. Tiger Woods was it's his foundation that benefits from the Genesis Open, won by Max Homa, who got the very rare reprieve of a missed three-foot birdie putt on 18 to win it, and he wins in a playoff. But really good golf, really good tournament. Tiger being there to award the trophy to the winner, of course, went on with Jim Nance. And, you know, Tiger, this is his first public appearance. since his fifth back surgery, fifth back surgery. That's a lot for anybody, let alone somebody who's the greatest golfer of the last 30 years. Tiger was asked about his prospects of playing in the Masters. And while he didn't say he wouldn't, he just 
kept pointing to his rehab schedule and where he's at, what he's hoping to progress to. Let me, let me read between the lines. Tiger Woods is not going to be seen on the PGA Tour for quite some time. I don't think he'll play the Masters. I don't think he'll play the PGA. I don't think he'll play the U.S. Open. I don't think we'll see Tiger Woods, if at all, until late this year. I really, he looked as somebody who wasn't close to being freed up. When asked about his golf moves now, what is he working on? He said he looks at his putter. (laughs) He's lengthened his putter because he doesn't have to bend over as much anymore. Not good. And, you know, you can say what you want about Tiger, but golf is more interesting when he's in the mix. And I know that doesn't happen very often anymore, but it sure isn't looking like it's going to happen anytime soon. Just not looking good whatsoever. So that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.